0: Welcome to The Urban Lab with Sam Chandon, the podcast on cities and the built environment, featuring leaders in industry, research, and policymaking. Welcome to Season 2 of The Urban Lab. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, the Silverstein Chair of NYU's Shack Institute of Real Estate. You can learn more about me and the show at samchandon.com and on Twitter and other social media at samchandon. We have an amazing season ahead with leaders from across industry, policy making and academia speaking to the future of cities and real estate as we emerge from the pandemic. We'll hear from experts on New York City's budget crisis, the future of public transportation, when more of us will head back to the office and to school and university, the drive to build more resilient urban infrastructure, housing and housing affordability, and a lot more. To receive updates as new shows are posted, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For the season's first interview, I'm joined by Arthenius Williams, Managing Director for Affordable Housing at Arbor Realty Trust and formerly of Freddie Mac, where he was a member of the Targeted Affordable Housing Group. We're discussing the landscape of affordable housing finance in the United States in a post-pandemic environment. Arthenius, thanks so much for joining me. Not a problem. Glad to be here. Arthenes, when we talk about the affordable housing sector in the United States, it's a fairly complex landscape. Uh, There's the capital-A formal uh, affordable housing sector, there's naturally occurring affordable housing, there is workforce housing. Uh, Maybe to kick us off, uh, tell us a little bit about the first of those, the formal affordable housing sector.
1: So, the formal affordable housing, or as you mentioned, the capital-A affordable housing in the the multifamily sphere of the real estate market is basically any uh, housing that has an affordability restriction, either being a rent, inc- uh, rent restriction, the amount of rent that can be charged or the uh, income so uh, which limits the amount of income that the household living in a particular unit can earn in order to qualify for that unit. So that is the definition of capital A affordable, which has a formal restriction put in place where does uh,
0: this formal affordable housing come from? Is it uh, from local government uh, or is it motivated by something that's happening at the federal level?
1: It's actually, um, most of it is actually out of the IRS code. And so that's how most affordable housing is being built today is out of the IRS uh, tax code. Um, So we are limited by uh, incomes at 50 or 60% of area median income that depending upon you know what the developer chooses to pursue, but those restrictions are put in place um, in order to incentivize. So there are tax incentives in which to create this housing. And, and so that's where the capital A affordable uh, kind of lies. And so anything 60% below that has a formal restriction put in place is the definition of, of capital A affordable. And that's really driven by the tax codes. Can you tell us a little bit more uh, about these tax
0: incentives
1: and uh, maybe a little bit about their history as well? Sure, so the uh, low income housing tax credit uh, comes out of the nineteen eighty six legislation um, which basically established the tax incentives that we are now utilizing in order to to build affordable housing and within that uh, legislation there were there's basically two types of tax credits there's the nine percent tax credit and then there's the four percent taxes and bond tax credits and so depending upon the availability of the there, it's a the nine percent are very competitive in which to win because of the amount of equity that uh, presupposes goes into the transaction based upon that execution. And then there's a t- and so basically the way that it works is that there's a dollar and twenty five for per capita for each person residing in a state. And so this, and so that dollar twenty-five translates into you know a certain dollar amount, and that's the amount of annual tax credits that a local, uh, that a state jurisdiction will have. They allocate that among their all of their um, allocating agencies across the state, and in order to finance affordable housing. Yeah. Um, then there's the four percent. Uh, tax credit which if you, uh, which is by right if you'll get the four percent tax credits if you uh, up, apply and are granted four percent bond taxes and bond financing um, and that there's normally a bond allocation for each state um, it, again and um, yeah, that are that is definitely that is used for the the construction and or re, rehab of affordable housing
0: one more background question, you've talked about area median income, and I'm wondering if you could tell me how broadly, geographically speaking, is that area defined? Uh, what I have in mind is a scenario where you know, if that area is Manhattan, then uh, the area median income, and even 60% of the area median income, uh, might be quite high. And so when we think of the folks that are the intended beneficiaries of affordable housing programs and incentives, it still may be out of reach for them.
1: Uh, and that's very true. Um, it, it, it is it is driven by local economics um, for each. Um, locality. Um, and so 50% or 60% of area median income, and like you said, in Manhattan is very different from 50% in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, and so, but that is the driver. And AMI is determined by HUD. And for each uh, jurisdiction, um, it establishes what that AMI is. And then based upon a formula, which basically boils down to about 30% of income, uh, establishes the maximum rents. That that can be charged at a, an individual property. So let's compare all of this now
0: to the adjacency to uh, the formal affordable housing sector. What do people mean when they talk about naturally occurring affordable housing?
1: So naturally occurring affordable housing is uh, basically based upon either location, condition, functional obsolescence that the rents themselves are affordable to people at the 60% of AMI. Um, there are no formal restrictions put in place. A lot of these properties may have, may accept a lot of Section 8 vouchers, um, and but it's because of, it's not because of restrictions that are put in place, but just because of market conditions that the rents that are being charged at those particular uh, properties are in a range that are affordable to people at, at 60%, you know, at, at the maximum of, uh, of affordable housing.
0: So, whether it is a formal or, or naturally occurring uh, affordable housing, I think the perception in, in a lot of communities around the country is that this is an urban phenomenon, something we'll find in the urban core. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the geographic distribution of affordable housing in the United States?
1: Sure. So um, you know, like you said, most people when they think affordable housing, they think of urban cores. But actually, affordable housing is everywhere. Um, you know, you, the, the urban core, the suburbs, the exurbs, and even rural. Um, you'll you can find you know you you'll find affordable housing um, with restrictions um, of some sort in order to uh, address a housing need within that particular jurisdiction. Um, historically. Uh, it, affordable housing has been in the urban cores, just based upon housing policies. Uh, where in you know the nineteen forties, fifties, and sixties, HUD, uh, well, you know, in the precursor um, before there was actually a HUD, um, there was just the concent- there was the concentration of affordable housing in the urban centers because local governments um, were given the resources, and that's where they built. Um, and the, but and and when the federal government. Built housing and managed housing—that's where the bulk of the affordable housing um, was built. However, once HUD and and the federal government moved from being a supplier to being more uh, addressing the the needs on the the demand side by giving vouchers and and incentive and 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 subsidies um, to developers, then that's where you saw the outgrowth of uh affordable housing going into the suburbs, the exurbs. Um and because housing, you know, it's the, the cost of to build housing, you know, has stagnant costs, and so if you can get land and you know in the suburbs or the exurbs cheaper, then it makes the development overall more profitable for the developers. So that's where you saw, you know, with the with the advent of the uh, of the '86 tax codes, where you saw the spread of affordable housing, just not so much concentrated in the urban cores. So you've raised actually a really important historical
0: point. Uh, there was a time where the federal government was actually in the business of creating affordable housing, uh, and that's not the case uh, right now. What motivated the change, and do you see it as a positive thing?
1: Um, you know, it it, it kind of started with, I, I believe it was uh, 1974, where there was a real shift in terms of uh, HUD, HUD policy. They just realized that there were just inefficiencies that they just could not address um the 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 demand was so uh there was such a demand um for the affordable housing, and they just couldn't keep up and so they tried to move towards a more. Addressing the demand and the, the bringing in the public, the private sector, um, in order to try and meet that demand, um, and so there was a real shift there. Um, and you know, there's there are definitely positives, you know, from that perspective. In that, you know, you've seen more efficiencies in the marketplace um, in terms of the construction um, uh, of more um, than what the federal co- government could necessarily provide on its own. Um, but overall, um, you know, the, the incentives um, that are created, um, you know, they're, they're, it's still not meeting the overall, the overall need, um, you know, just based upon more recent data, we're still at about a deficit of about 7 million units um, needed in the affordable housing space in order to meet the, the, the overall demand. So that's a perfect
0: segue into my next question. Do we have enough affordable housing in the United States? Uh, If not, and uh, you and I both know the answer to this, but if not, what are the main reasons why we don't? Um, Is it uh, that we can't get projects to pencil out uh, given construction costs and the potential rent revenue? Uh, Is it uh, zoning? Uh, What is it that is constraining the market in producing more affordable housing?
1: Um, You know, it's all of the above. Um, It's, you know, it's a combination of factors, just population growth overall. Um, Economically, the uh, wage growth has been outstripped by cost of living um, increases. Um, We've had recessions, um, you know, and just economic downturns that have contributed. um, Changes from, you know, a, a, a manufacturing base to a service economy. All of those factors play into why we are at you know now a deficit you know at the extreme ends of uh, for affordable housing you know that number that's you know th- that uh, most economists kind of agree uh, of of about 7 million, uh, 7 million units of affordable housing at a deficit um so it's all of those factors um I would say that you know in the another big um factor to that is just construction costs overall um you know the cost of a brick is the cost of a brick whether it's going into a luxury building or if it's going into an affordable housing um, development that cost is uh, is a baseline and construction costs have outstripped wage increases so that is a contributing factor as well so um but just you know overall population growth you know uh, economics as a whole um you know and you know what the, so not only do we have you know the underclass where there has been a deficit now we're also moving into this period where professions you know that have traditionally been that middle class and you know the the stronghold in american society the teachers the the firemen the policemen they too are now experiencing Housing, where they're cost burdens and, and housing deficits, that is only contributing to. So now, if they're at a deficit, and whereas their their incomes cannot support what has traditionally been purchasing um, single-family homes, and now they're in the multifamily rental market, that is only putting additional pressure on the market, um, which is exacerbating the situation. So, now we have an idea of what
0: affordable housing is, both uh, formal and naturally occurring. We have an idea of uh, the shortfall that exists and the need uh, for uh, affordable housing. Tell us a little bit about your platform and the kinds of things that you're doing uh, to
1: uh, ameliorate the situation. Sure. So, Arbor is a a mortgage lender, we're a top-tier industry-leading mortgage lender. Um, with licenses, with um, the, all of the gener- um, these um, the GSEs, uh, the government sponsored enterprises, um, and so affordable housing is just um, you know for Arbor is just a natural outgrowth of the platforms that we've already built here in the market rate space as well as the small balance lending. Uh, space as well. We're industry leaders in the in those two areas of the real estate market. So affordable housing is just a natural outgrowth. It's a you know we are a publicly traded um, company, so you know we have you know profit you know re- requirements and things like that. But um, it's also consistent with our mi- uh, with our mission. Um, we believe that you know everyone in America deserves a clean, safe, affordable housing unit, and so this is just a natural outgrowth of our you know our business platform, but also our mission. And so within that, um, I am charged to lead the, uh, the affordable platform, and as you said, it, it covers a broad spectrum of uh, different products and, uh, and opportunities that we pursue in that space and working with our, with our clients to help them finance their affordable housing projects.
0: So you mentioned the the GSEs, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Of course, there's you know HUD and the FHA, Federal Housing Administration. Uh, tell us a little bit about the partners that you work with uh, to make uh, these uh, financing products and options available in the marketplace.
1: So you know we we are working directly with our clients. Um, we we serve as kind of the linchpin between the developers and the agencies um, uh, to provide the the permanent debt opportunities. Um, And so as a developer is putting their uh, development plan together for either the rehab or the new construction of a property, we serve to help them get their permanent debt solutions through the GSEs. Um, and then uh, they'll work with um, you know, a variety of tax credit investors and syndicators in order to provide the equity needed for their transactions um, through the tax through the tax credits themselves. Um, And so we'll help them and we'll serve as a partner to help guide them through their overall execution, Um, you know, and there may be a need for, you know, there's a need. So while we're working with the GSEs to provide the the permanent financing, there's also the need for the construction financing. Um, There may be requirements for, you know, either some type of mezzanine um, lending or, you know, private equity, depending upon whatever the needs of our particular sponsors are. So we provide. You know, kind of a soup to nuts from the from the debt perspective to get them from through construction, um, and even through pre-development, pre-development through uh, pre-development through perm, and that's kind of the platform. So, in the same way that you describe the
0: affordable housing business as a natural outgrowth of Arbor's you know, market-rate multifamily lending platform, let's look at the other side of this: the developer investor. Is uh, who's perhaps been focused on market rate multifamily across the United States or in a particular market is affordable a natural outgrowth of their business for them as well? Um, you know, are, are there skills that they develop, capacities, expertise that come with being a market rate multifamily developer, investor, operator uh, that are uh, easily transferable uh, into uh, the affordable housing world? Or is it
1: a completely different skill set? So it's actually both. Um, <laughs> um, you know, the, going into the affordable housing space, absolutely, um, developers can and should. Um, it, it just makes good economic sense. The you know, from a you know, from a developer perspective, in terms of their return requirements, um, affordable housing. You know, you have to meet your expectations for your investors and things like that. So the it's it's just a natural outgrowth. Um, the difference is that we, it, when developing at, uh, for affordable housing, it's, it's really getting an understanding of the process of getting going through the approval process for either the nine percent tax credits or the four percent bonds, um, as well as any soft financing that may be sought from the local housing um, housing finance agencies and um, and the like. And you know, so and and also if the expectation is to try and get some form of a Section Eight subsidy, um, working with HUD as well. And so, that's where the difference lies. In that you know, as a as a market rate developer, you know, you got, you got debt and equity and you make the numbers work based upon your debt and your equity. Um, but when you're working with an affordable housing development, there is the added process that is full of pitfalls um, in terms of getting through the approval process for the, for the tax credits themselves, so that the bonds themselves, as well as any soft financing and dealing with the local Uh, government entities um, that control uh, those sources of uh, those resources. So you, you need to, I mean, you know, understanding the, you know, the basics of real estate, you know, in terms of, you know, this, these are the rents that I can charge, and you know this is what you know the debt I can support, and so this is the amount of equity I need in order to make my deal work. Um, it, there, there are the added challenges of dealing with the, the the housing finance agencies and the local governments in order to get the the requisite approvals that are needed in order to move through the affordable housing financing process.
0: So we're we're in a different political environment uh, than we were just a couple of months ago. Without actually getting into the politics. Uh, is there a wish list uh, for folks, uh, including yourself, in the world of affordable housing, things you'd like to see happen at the federal level uh, that could help to encourage uh, a greater supply of uh, affordable housing, uh, whether it is formal or informal?
1: Sure. Um, I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but part of where we are um, in terms of the, the the value of the tax credits if we could establish a minimum baseline for the interest rate, that would uh, encourage more equity and allow for more developments to to be built. Um, you know, there there's some nuances to that. And, you know, where I could give a dissertation or probably better yet, bring some folks in who are better qualified to have that conversation about the value of the tax credits. But um, Suffice it to say that um, really, um, right now, because where cap rates are in the marketplace, that's really driving up acquisition price prices overall, both um, for you know the the value of land or if it's a preservation rehab deal, um, you know the the cost of the asset itself, and so if you're you know, if you have to spend more money for the acquisition, that leaves less for the actual rehab. And, you know, so it limits, you know, the quality of that rehab. So, so if we can establish a baseline for the, the value of the tax credits, I think that would go a long way in, in helping move um, a lot of tr- uh, transactions forward, because right now, with those acquisition prices, you know, developers are really looking for some form of soft financing, which this, the the local municipalities just do not have, um, and during these economic times, um, in order to to support the subsidies that are needed in order to, to build um, uh, the affordable housing, build or rehab the affordable housing. So, you know, first and foremost, I think that that's an important piece. Um, the second part, uh, in terms of a wish list. Um, you know, I think that we should look to uh, inclusionary housing and upzoning in order to encourage um, affordable housing, Um, you know, with market redevelopments. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, you know, the you want to, you know, market efficiency says you should build what up to what the market can support. Um, But when we do that... um, people on the lower end of the spectrum are normally left out um, from an affordability standpoint. And so if we are going to grant the approvals for a market rate development, um, having an inclusion of, of affordable units um, interspersed, um, it just makes a good policy from my perspective. Um, you know, you, you and where you can't distinguish between, you know, a unit that is deemed affordable versus, you know, a market rate unit, you know, you have income mixing and, and it just does uh, from, an, from a policy perspective, I think that that is quality, um, adds to the overall quality of the housing um, and the, the diversity of the housing, but it just makes, you know, good policy sense. And so, you know, those are the two things that I would really look to.
0: And just a quick clarification, because we have listeners with so many different backgrounds. When you talk about up zoning, what exactly do you mean? Well,
1: up zoning, uh, if you're going to build um, a market rate development, and there is a certain level of zoning that you know that uh, for from a density perspective, allowing for more density to allow for. More inclusion of affordable units. So you know, if you know the requirement is that for parcel you can build 100 units, allow for 120 units to be built, and with that, those additional 20%, you know, the additional 20 units um, have an uh, have a rent or an income restriction on those, um, and it just makes good policy sense.
0: Have we seen you know in in local governments around the country and in affluent neighborhoods, uh, folks uh, embracing up
1: um we have seen that um I I you know I, I my my hope was that there would be more. Um but we have seen it. Um you know especially in major cities um where you know land is at a premium. Um it it we have seen a, a lot more upzoning. Um you know in the suburbs you know where land is more plentiful it may not be um the density may not be an issue but you know there there we would use more inclusionary zoning. Than you know the requirement for upzoning, um, just because you know the it, density is not an issue.
0: Arthenius, thank you uh, so much for joining me. This has been absolutely fascinating, and certainly for me and many others, um, you know, this question of uh, how we meet uh, the country's affordable housing needs, whether it be formal, affordable, or naturally occurring, uh, or, or workforce, just amongst the most uh, important and immediate questions that we face in uh, the real estate market today and, and have for some time. Uh, again, thank you uh, so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. That was Arthanius Williams, Managing Director of Affordable Housing at Arbor Realty Trust. Uh, once again, I'm your host, Sam Chandon, the Silverstein Chair of NYU's Shack Institute of Real Estate. You can learn more about me and the program at samchandon.com. Uh, also visit me on Twitter or any other social media at Sam Chandon. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, please rate the show. Uh, both of those will uh, ensure that you get updates as new season two segments are posted thanks for listening to the urban lab for more information about the program and our host please visit samchandon.com slash
1: urban lab